On today's episode, we talk about luxury, we talk about passion, we talk about family. As always, this is Flavor Report, where we talk about the story behind the flavor. My name is Joe Winger, and here's my question for you. Do you love wine? Do you love hearing secrets and tips about one of the world's most famous wine regions? This winemaker is pursuing the American dream. He moved to the United States, ended up with an amazing job at a luxury company. Through hard work and intense hours, he became one of the best at his job at the luxury company. He learned a ton, and years later, he became a winemaker and opened his own winery. We're talking about Malik Imrami. I love learning about his sales experience. I love learning about what he learned making his way up through the ranks. And my gosh, his wine is absolutely delicious. Wait till you hear about it. So without further ado, this is Malik Imrani from The Vice Wine. So today's conversation is extra fun because we're all always looking to discover new wines. And I had the opportunity this week to taste three new wines. And and quite literally, one was better than the next. Like every single one was a surprise, a delight. And the best part for me was we got to meet a new winemaker from the whole experience. And so today we're going to talk with the Vice Wines, Malik Amrani. So we're here. He's in Napa today. Malik, thank you for joining us for the conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. So just as we were talking a second ago, I just want people to understand how busy you are sharing your wines with the world. Talk a little bit about where you just came from and talk a little bit about how much you're traveling. And I don't know if people realize how much the average wine industry professional is traveling and what you, how you spend your time. Can you share a little bit about your average calendar week? Sure, thank you. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me today. Uh, I just literally just walked in three minutes ago. Uh, far, I was in uh, Miami. So uh, I landed in San Francisco a couple hours ago and just got in here. Um, so speaking about travel, a lot of what we do is travel because um, you can make the best wine in the world, but it's really the ability to go out and sell it that makes it, you know, that makes it a successful that makes us successful or not. It all, all comes down to sales. Um, so uh, on average, I mean, for me, for the last eight years, I average uh, about five, six nights uh, a month at home. So uh, a lot of my time has been spent on the road. Although this year I'm trying to shift gear a little bit and spend more time here in Napa Valley and less time on the road. Got it. So we're going to get into the wines in front of you. We're going to get into your story. Um, there's a fair chance that a lot of people are just want to get to know actually who you are and how you ended up in Napa. So a nice, easy get to know you question is a lot of people associate wine with celebrations. So what inspired you to get into the world of wine and if it was a celebration or a memory, can you tell us what that memory was? So uh, what inspired me to get into wine was my love for it. I was fortunate enough to start tasting wine at an early age with my father. And, um, you know, I uh, graduated high school at 16 in Casablanca, Morocco, 
went to uh, Senegal, West Africa for med school. I did a year there and realized that it wasn't for me. Um, you know, some people are born, born to be doctors and I realized that I wasn't. Um, and speaking of celebration, I, you know, I uh, really wanted to do something that uh, was quite celebratory on a daily basis and fun. So uh, I moved to New York. The first six months in New York, I really, uh, you know, just tried to survive and bounced around and did all type of jobs. But then I quickly realized that um, I kind of needed to get my hands on wine and not have to pay for it. And then meet people as well, because I was new to New York and I had no friends, no family. So I wanted to meet people. And I realized that uh, working at, uh, in the wine industry, wine bars, restaurants would be ideal to uh, fulfill the two needs that I had at the time. So uh, I dove in into the wine industry early on at the age of 18. And, um, you know, between 18 and 21, I worked the restaurant world um, uh, a lot. You know, I was working two, three jobs consistently. And uh, I was fortunate that when I was 21, I, uh, uh, I got a job uh, in distribution representing Diageo and Moa Hennessy brands in Manhattan to uh, on-premise accounts, basically restaurants, bars, hotels, and whatnot. And um, during that time, I also got inspired to uh, start importing uh, small batch uh, boutique wines to New York and uh, selling them to, you know, selling them to uh, people I knew and, uh, you know, make a name for myself in the industry through imports as well beyond the territory that I had at my uh, first job. And then, you know, in my mid-20s, I was doing it, I realized I kind of done it all in the wine business except to make wine. And the wine region that I've always been a big fan of was Napa Valley. So I looked for a brand that kind of was a solution to what I was looking for. One, a uh, Napa Valley winery that made wine uh, for that everyday occasion that I can afford, accessible. Okay. And two, a uh, winery that made more than the classic three, four varietals, Cabernet, Sauvignon, um, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, and Merlot. Um, and there aren't many, really. And lastly, a winery that kind of broke down Napa Valley to the sub-regions that there are. Because Napa has such a very diverse terroir and sub-regions, 16 in total today. Wow. So I couldn't find one. So I decided to make one start one create one and beautiful that's how the life started I, I love it and we're absolutely because you chose a specific region and a legendary re region we're going to get into that in a moment um you said something a few minutes ago that i really want to explore a bit which is it's one thing to create and produce wine but it's a whole other challenge to sell wine and clearly your, your, I'm not sure if it was your last job, but maybe your biggest job was quite literally doing that. And so let's go back. To, if we can talk about working for Moa Hennessy for a moment, forgive me if I'm wrong and correct me. 
probably the biggest, most aggressive company possibly in the world. So what was it like getting that job? Was it a challenge? Was it based on just education? How did you go about getting that job? And then what kind of lessons did you learn while being there that's helping you do what you do today? Well, it was it was out of luck. I was a buyer of a restaurant in um, in Manhattan on Park Avenue in Manhattan, and I was talking to my sales rep. You know, I asked him if he liked his job, and I really didn't think about applying or anything. But I, he thought that I was interested in you know a similar position, and out of luck, they had open positions, and he spoke to uh, my first manager at the company. And uh, she called me and she, she asked me to meet with her. I honestly didn't know what she wanted to meet about. Uh, I thought she wanted to meet about the restaurant where I was working and, you know, working some program or something. And uh, in less than 48 hours, I had a job. So, um, so I was quite lucky. But uh, how, um, how intense and how it is, you know, looking at, you know, more Hennessy or LVMH is a big umbrella. It's the number one luxury company in the world. Um, they certainly do a lot of things right. They are number one for a reason. And at the same time, I was with, you know, the the sister company that owns also part of the Moa Hennessy is Diageo. Diageo is the biggest liquor supplier in the world. And at the time they had wine as well. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's, it is very, it, in a way, it is easier to walk in anywhere and say, I have Johnny Walker or Viv Clico or, you know, Don Perignon in my portfolio. But at the same time, it was very, um, from a sales perspective, it was very, uh, not aggressive, but very, uh, very uh, goals driven. And I found myself that out of 116 months of employment, I was a top quarter performer for 112. So it was extremely competitive. And I wanted to be the best at what, at what I did uh, all the time. Um, so, you know, a lot of it really has to do with building relationships and working as, you know, harder than the competition. and and uh, doing a lot of things right and never promising something and not delivering. At the end there, you mentioned a few suggestions, but in general, because you're building out your current brand of the Vice Wines, is there a major lesson that you learned while working at that global luxury company that has helped you, that has helped the Vice Wines explode to the growth it has today? Yes, I think, I mean, many things. My first, probably my most important lesson was to intertwine your personal life and your professional life in this, this industry. You can't really separate them and be successful at it. I think it's just making it work. It is a fun industry. You know, we do go out a lot and get to enjoy a glass of wine during the day or two or three. Um, and we find dine a lot. But at the same time, it is work. And, uh, you know, finding the balance between the personal and the professional and making them one feed the other in a sense, it's uh, one of the biggest, uh, you know, advantages uh, 
uh, that one can do to succeed in this industry. Perfect. So both, this is the last question I have on that, then I promise we'll go right to the vice wines. But both, I, I think you fulfilled two fantasies that a whole lot of wine people dream about doing. One being the old job that you had, second being the new job, that the, the owner that you've become. There's a decent chance half the people watching right now have at least that first fantasy of, I want to be a rock star salesman at these amazing companies. So for that half of the two, what any practical advice you have for someone who wants to be who you were a few years ago, whether, whether they don't realize the reality of it or whether they want that reality, any advice? Yeah, absolutely. I have a few. One, it takes time and you have to be patient and persistent and consistent. Uh, you know, it, it, to build relationships and, and build a territory and build certain sales revenue, it doesn't happen overnight. It, you first gotta like establish relationships and relation, relationships come, be, come, come down to trust. The second thing is it really comes down to, you know, when I said consistent, being, being um, patient and consistent, it really comes down to outlasting the competition because there is such a huge turnover in the industry. So if you trust the process that if you stick around long enough and do certain things right for a long time, people will turn over in the industry and there, there will be opportunities that will pop up left and right and they will be yours for you to capture. Um, personally, one of the things that really made me successful and a lot of people may not even, may, you know, it's personal to me and a lot of people may not do it, is that for 10 years in Manhattan, I commuted in a motorcycle 12 months a year. So, you know, the subway was fast, but I never wanted to miss a phone call. And, you know, when the average salesperson was probably seeing five, six, seven accounts a day, I was seeing consistently 15 to 20. So wow. I was able to have a bigger territory and be and see my uh, my clients on the regular uh, without appointments because I was on a motorcycle. I was the guy just going to show up and just uh, say hello and I was uh, in and out just checking on you see if you need anything versus I have to make an appointment find parking all that kind of stuff so that's just um, you know it, it, obviously this is specific to Manhattan to where I was it's not it's not applicable to someone in you know in somewhere in the bigger market but well I, I think the analogy of the work ethic definitely is because if you think about that 15 in a day is a very deliberate choice with time and energy so that really does say a lot about your focus your intentions and your results and i'm going to segue that and i'm going to create a nickname for a moment tell me if it's accurate i'm going to call it moving on the vice moment because my question is going to be is you had this life clearly it was challenging time intensive, possibly stressful, possibly high risk, high reward. Was there a vice moment when you said that was fun, that was great, but it's time to be become a wine brand? It, was there a moment when that decision was made? Um, well, that moment probably lasted a couple of years. There was oh. a lot of self 
questioning and self-doubt on the daily because I had at one point I had two very successful businesses. One, the one I worked my job on a W-2 and the other one, my own business, my import business. And, um, you know, um, I was doing pretty well at the time in my mid-20s and, you know, within three, four years, I may have paid a little bit over a million dollars in taxes. And it's, it was like, you know, how do you let all this go uh, and, you know, jump into the vice and, you know, basically not have a revenue. And, um, you know, especially in the beginning, the, the, the first stages, it took me a couple of years to really decide to, um, to do so. But the vice, the idea started in 2013, we really became a business in 2016. And I let everything go for the vice in 2018. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it took some time. At one point, I was having three businesses happening all at once. And it was very stressful. So that vice moment, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like sudden, it wasn't quick, it was a long vice moment. What, what I kind of admire is, based on how you retell that, is you had a long-term or a mid-term vision, and it was about getting your reality toward that vision. And it wasn't overnight, but it sounds like you were making responsible steps in that direction over and over again until you got there. Is that pretty accurate? Okay. So much like the legendary company you used to work for, you then transferred to working legendary wine regions. Tell us about the regions that the vice is in and equally important, how the heck did you get grapes sourced from these? I mean, there's people out there with a lot of money, a lot of resources who want to have grapes where you came from. How on earth did you get that? Sure, so I'll answer the first question. So I chose Napa Valley because Napa One is the vice to me, hence the name of the vice wine, name of the brand. My vice is wine, but the vice is Napa. And I've always been a huge fan of Napa. And uh, you know, Napa is the apex of the American wine industry. It's what set the tone for, it's what opened, you know, it's what really uh, led this American wine revolution in a sense. It all started really with Napa uh, back in, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, but so I, I wanted to shoot for the top because, uh, you know, because of that aspect. And also, you know, it's just part of the American dream as an immigrant, there is nowhere on the planet I, I can't imagine myself going to France, Italy, or Spain and walking right into their top wine region and say, I'm gonna do what I do today. I, you know, it, I, will, I, I have no doubt I wouldn't be welcomed. So Napa did just the opposite and welcomed me and gave me an opportunity, not just as a um, wine region, but as a community. The second thing, you're to, the second question, how I got into uh, having access to these grapes, a lot of it is street work. You know, a lot of it is just uh, putting the time here, I was coming a lot to Napa and hanging out to, you know, a lot of places where winemakers hang out for lunch or dinner and talking to the bartenders and 
doing my uh, due diligence and investigating on my own and really networking and, uh, and uh, you know, knocking at doors, not being afraid to knock at doors and um, introduce myself to people and, and uh, tell them about what my plans are and see if they're willing to sell me some grapes. And in this industry, when you buy, when you contract with somebody, buy the grapes, you pay a little bit, a third, a quarter, uh, of what the grapes are worth when you first pick the grapes and then the rest within time in the new year or so. A lot of what I've done in the beginning was prepaying. So I prepaid for the grapes. Well, they were still hanging on the vines. It's almost like buying a fish with still fish swimming in the ocean. Um, so in that sense, they owed me versus like I was in the mercy of a lot of the growers to sell me grapes. You know, they already had the they already got paid, so they, uh, they, uh, they, they had to work with me in a sense. And, uh, you know, being, uh, being, uh, being, again, honest, not being late on payments or anything like that, and having good relationships with the growers goes a very long way. Self-financed, third-party financed? I mean, this is a big undertaking. Yeah, so actually all self-financed. Uh, yeah. You know, since day one. Uh, Beautiful. Okay. Uh, so you see, okay. part of me about not going to college was about not having debt and wanting to make money. So I had a goal by the age of 21. I had uh, a number that was a six-digit number that I had saved in actual cash. Wow. Uh, and I did. And then I had another goal uh, for when I reached 30. But... I didn't, you know, that wasn't more financial. It was more about being financially independent through owning businesses. And I kind of achieved that goal with the vice and, and uh, my import business prior. Uh, but I've dressed really nice all the time, but I was frugal. I knew how, uh, I knew how to get a good deal. And, uh, but I, you know, I, I lived a luxury life, but also... I was frugal at the same time. I know it sounds oxymoronic, but I did save. Um, I've, I've, I've saved, uh, you know, through all my twenties, uh, and uh, you know, I invested. I doubled down on myself and invested uh, on the vice, and I, gamb I, I gambled on me. So it was the it was the best investment I've done. I, I, I uh, you know, I didn't really. Uh, put my savings into stock market, into the stock market or into anything. It was more like, you know, let's put it on device and, and go from there. Beautiful. Um, now, before we get into the grapes, you've said the word vice a few times. And I want, just because it's kind of a romantic, I shouldn't say kind of, it is a family story and a romantic story. Can you share your Napa dream with us that you put on your bottles and let us know what that means to your family, that story? Yeah, so I'm sipping right now, batch number 100, the Napa dream. So we make our wines in batches. So every single wine, I made a little bit over 130 wines to date. Every single wine has a number. It started with number one, which was a, a Chardonnay 2013 vintage. Um, and when I first started the vice, I kind of had this long-term vision, but I didn't envision myself to be here today with batch number 100. So batch number 100 is an homage to batch number one. Um, 
I, uh, you know, I named the vice the vice and not my last name. Uh, you know, as, as you see, like most of the, the, the wine industry, it's someone's last name. It's, uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of brands globally, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's someone's name on, on the label. I didn't want to do that. They want the vice to me is um, what wine is, is a vice, Napa is the vice. So it's very personal. But at the same time, back in 2013, uh, the craft beer industry had its moments from 20, 2008 to 2000, you know, still has it, but it really had a boom in 2008. And the craft beer industry, what made it really successful were the names. I mean, craft beer has some really wild names. And, you know, when you look at a beer, you look at the name and packaging, and it's what probably draws you to, 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 to open the can. You buy it and, 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 and try it. At the time, in 2013, there weren't many, uh, many uh, unconservative names in the wine business. It was, uh, you know, it was still very conservative names and people's last names. There was 19 crimes, I believe, and there was the prisoner. I never understood. And I was like, you know, to me, there were edgy names. And I thought the vice would be a very good name, one, because it meant something to me, and two, it's very edgy and, um, you know, it's borderline uh, bad. It's not bad. It's not bad unless you do too much of it. That's what vices are. If you overdo it, then you become bad. You become addictions, other things. And it's an easy name to remember. So, you know, um, and um, yeah, so that was, that's the story with the name. I, I love it. I love it. Um, so I'm going to assume almost every wine lover knows Napa Valley. So I would love to just touch a little bit on the region of Napa, but also equally important is tell us about the soil your vineyards are using and how that influences your aromas and your tastes as we actually get into the bottles themselves. Yeah. So you know, when people talk about Napa Valley, most of the time we talk about how this perfect Mediterranean climate that we have here, um, its location about 35 miles east of the Pacific Ocean, the, the bay, San Pablo Bay, which is an extension of San Francisco Bay, the microclimate. We talk a lot about the microclimate. But um, one thing that I think makes Napa uh, the best wine region in the world, to my, in my opinion, is that Napa has half of the world recognized soil orders. It's a, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a paradise for someone that's really into soil because there's so much, so much diversity here, uh, more than anywhere else when it comes to soil diversity that, um, you know, we make wine from 14 out of 16 sub-regions of, of Napa, but within the same AVA, within the same sub-region, we have different soils. Um, so a lot of the, most of the wines that we make are single vineyard wine. So you do get to um, taste the purity of the terroir from a specific uh, soil type, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's something honestly that we can talk about for uh, for days, and it's it, it's it's uh, 
it's kind of like it's it's fun for most people it's quite boring to talk about soil <laughs> but for us here in napa we it's something that we do focus on and we do care about but it's it's such a um, huge topic fair enough so going a little deeper in that for a moment for those of those of people paying attention they picture you in manhattan they picture you at that old job you had probably dressed very well i'm assuming at that old job and now they see you i'm going to paint the picture of on this vineyard and for those who haven't been it's frankly a farm right what was it like the first time you stepped onto that vineyard your feet hit the mud tell me about what that experience was like for you you know for me honestly it was always it felt like it was my calling because although i lived in I come from one of the biggest cities in Africa, Casablanca, and then I lived in New York. I mean, it's New York City, Manhattan, and I lived in Manhattan. I worked in Manhattan. I rode a motorcycle in Manhattan. I always felt um, that my calling was to be um, in the countryside. Although Napa, it is countryside, but it's like the Hamptons of the West. It's still, it's, you know, it's the probably the most expensive agriculture land in the world. It's very beautiful, but, uh, you know, being in touch with nature and being a little isolated from uh, the hustle and bustle of civilization, which is usually in the cities, uh, it, I, I, find it, I find a balance uh, when I'm here in Napa because I do travel a lot also, I'm on the road and I'm back to the cities trying to sell, sell wine across the US and also across the world. I go to Tokyo and, and I go to other places as well. So to answer your question, uh, if I haven't already, um, it's my balance, it's my happy place being in the vineyard. Um, I'm sure you can't picture me, but I do, I do wear a lot now. I never thought I would ever be wearing cowboy hats a lot, but I do wear them because you know, it covers my head pretty well for this, with this, uh, from the sun, but uh, it's a great lifestyle. For you, it's a lot of fun. When, when I've, I always relate to it as wearing costumes. So you have your Manhattan costume, you have your farm costume. That's the kind of how I see it. I don't know if you can... Uh, agree with that or not so you've got four bottles in front of you right now let's dive in and pick any all i fell in love i was privileged this week to taste through them and my gosh i mean they're just absolutely amazing but maybe walk us through your favorites talk about aromas and flavors and color and what you love about them so much so first thing, I don't have favorites. All my batches are equal to me. Every single batch has a story, has a, you know, has a labor of love. But uh, the wine of the moment right now is my orange wine. Um, so I started making orange wines in 2020. Orange wine is the oldest winemaking style in the world. Five, 6,000 years ago when they started fermenting grapes, uh, so to my knowledge, they were white wine grapes. Today, all white wine, we take the varietals, we press or break the skins of the grape and capture the juice immediately, discard the skin. Orange wine is basically pretending to make red wine with white wine grapes. So there is 
we, we skim, there's a skim contact, it's called skim contact. So we basically ferment the juice out of the grapes with their own skins. And what you get in return, you get some, you know, some type of orange hue in the wine. The wine I'm opening right now is my orange of Gewürztraminer, and it's called Brooklynites because that's where I got the inspiration out of Brooklyn. Um, and we're doing really well with it. It's just been very successful for us. It's up and coming. Orange wine reminds me of rosé of uh, 15 years ago when rosé just started to make a comeback or just started to grow in sales and popularity. And I feel like um, also with orange wine, I feel like it's a generational thing. If you look at Sauvignon Blanc, for example, uh, one of the top, if not the top white wine varietal right now, 20 years ago, no one was really drinking Sauvignon Blanc, but it was really the Gen X that made it popular. Um, same thing with Rosé. Um, I feel like orange is, is just at its infancy stages right now, and it's um, having its moment, um, driven by millennials and Gen Zs. Also, Gen X and boomers, when they see it on a wine list and they see it at a store, they kind of get feel curious, maybe a little embarrassed that they haven't had an orange wine. They've been drinking wine for decades already. So there is a little sense of curiosity when it comes to orange. Um, so it's, uh, it's doing really well for us. It's 3,000 case production right now. Uh, our total production of device is 27,000. This is 3,000 case production. Um, the orange of Gewürztraminer. And Gewürztraminer, the varietal means spicy Traminer, although it's one of the most, they call it spicy to me, if I had to call it, I won't call it spicy, I'll call it flamboyant, because it just pops out of the glass with so much roses, lychee, peach, apricot. It's like, you know, uh, to me it's like, for someone to just get into wine, 101 wine to like teach them to smell wine and taste it would be Gewürztraminer. Uh, it's a really pretty varietal. And uh, this orange wine of Gewürztraminer is certainly a treat. Very well said. I, uh, I had your orange of Viognier and obviously incredibly drinkable. Um, perfect for July, but perfect all year long. And as you're describing, I was just, as you pop the cork, it's almost challenging not to smile because it just, it smells like happiness, right? It just smells like it's going to be okay. Like if you had a bad day, that bottle's going to make you happier. And if you had a great day, it's the smell of celebration. Like it's like, boom, you just, you, like, you deserve that after a good day. And so beautiful summertime, but a beautiful start to any night. Thank you. That orange of Viognier is our first barrel aged orange. So we actually aged it in neutral oak barrels. It doesn't get much flavor from the oak, but it kind of like aging it in oak, there is an oxygen exchange. So it kind of like smooth, smooths it out and brings out more flavor out of the wine. Now, my understanding is you're a, a level three psalm. Is that accurate? Yes. Where in your journey were your levels? Was it all previous or did some of it come while you're doing the vice? Where did you get your education? 
It was all previous. Okay. Um, honestly, it was between the age, the age of 18 and 21, working in the industry and uh, working as a buyer. I was fortunate enough to have very, very uh, uh, knowledgeable salespeople show up to me every single day trying to sell me wine and every single one of them had five six seven wines in their bag so i was tasting uh on a weekly basis over 100 wines so the education was more practical uh before really studying although i was studying at the same time uh you know studying about wine learning about it and then when i went also into distribution Part of our training, ongoing training, is uh, you know there is some some type of education, and uh, um, although you know really in this industry the knowledge and education never stops, and no one will ever know it all because it's an unlimited world of wine. So you know I you know this is all I kind of focused on for the last. Uh, 20 years is the wine industry. So uh, I do, you know, I, 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 I am very knowledgeable about, uh, you know, the wine industry and now winemaking as well, beyond just uh, the wine regions and the varietals. However, I'm always going to be humble about it that I will never know it all. So um, yeah, that's, uh, that's the reality of it. I, I think a lesson that I'm receiving from you that I hope people watching are is the incredible success you've had in wine already, the potential for future success, but my gosh, what a humble, modest, grateful energy you have about you. And that's really just, it's a special thing because I think so often what you already know and what, so many people in wine who, who don't know wine have this intimidation about a snobby factor. And I think, again, you're deeper in this than I am. But for the most part, in reality, it's not there at all. And I think you kind of embody the fact that people have this fear of snobby and intimidation. And when you get to know someone at your level of education, your level of experience, your happiness and gratefulness and generosity is what most wine makers, wine professionals, wine industry embody. Have you always had this level of gratitude or where did it come from? Of course. Um, I, it's, uh, you know, it's the foundation of everything I do. And my hope is that long-term, you know, we are kind of like at a crossroad as an industry, the wine industry overall, because you hear a lot about how to bring the next generation of wine drinkers into the wine scene. You know, like the wine industry has seen declines of one to two percent on a yearly basis for the last decade. The only age group that actually consumed more wine last year than previous year is the baby boomers, which is crazy because you think about it as they're aging, they probably should be drinking less, not more. Um, that's where the growth was last year. But the industry overall, you know, there is a little struggle to bring the next generation uh, into the wine industry. And I think a very big part of it has to do with that snobbiness. 
and complicating things and not being uh, not being humble about it. I mean, the reality is one has been around for the last five, 6,000 years and it will be around, it's not going anywhere. But you know, when you look at the advancements in everything in life, whether communication, travel, uh, everything, everything, uh, food production, when you look at the advancement of everything as a human civilization, wine hasn't made, hasn't made that much progress. I mean, the winemaking of few hundred years ago, uh, if not a couple thousand years ago, is not really that different from what we're doing today. So I believe that some people, they make things complicated when they shouldn't, they should just do the opposite and simplify it. Uh, because this, uh, you know, it is this, this, this beverage wine, it is a unique and, uh, you know, it is a it is a unique beverage. It is a symbol of, you know, it, it's, it's got so many symbols, you know, for some people, it's a religious symbol, you know, um, some people it's a symbol of status. There's a reason why people go to clubs and pop bottles of champagne. It's not because of the taste, it's more status. And there's, and there's so much meaning to it. There is health meaning. Some people drink it for health reasons, you know, in moderation. Uh, and lifestyle. So, uh, so yeah, I really hope that the future of wine will be humble and simplified than the opposite. Very extremely well said. To your left, you have a bottle of Chardonnay. And if it's the 2020 that I had the privilege of tasting, so we have to talk about it because the aroma, the mouthfeel, the balance. How did you decide what it was going to, how, when, when you were creating it, how did you decide how, what it was going to be like? So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it is an homage to batch number one, Chardonnay. So I really wanted to create something almost like as a legacy and a celebration for reaching that milestone of making a hundred wines. Um, I wanted to go back to very traditional winemaking, uh, you know, uh, Burgundy, Chardonnay, the birthplace perhaps of Chardonnay's Burgundy. And in Burgundy, a hundred years ago, they were not bottling every single year. They bottled when they needed to. They had good vintages, bad vintages. So it wasn't this cycle. Now, the majority of the industry doesn't age Chardonnay for more than 12 months in oak. That's what I'm trying to say. This Chardonnay has aged for 30 long months in new French oak. So it is an oak bomb. And, uh, but the, most people, they actually misinterpret the, they have a misunderstanding of oak and malolactic fermentation in wine. I hear it all the time, people saying, I hate oaky Chardonnays because they're too buttery, too oaky buttery. Well, there's two different things. Oaky and buttery are very two different things. So the malolactic fermentation, the conversion of malic acid into lactic acid is what gives you that creaminess in Chardonnay and predominantly all, all red wines go through it. But in white wines, Chardonnay is the only one really that goes through mallow. Um, 
and it is a it is a style that's fading you know it's um you know boomers still love the buttery chardonnays but when it comes to oak um you really don't find anybody asian chardonnay for 30 months it's 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 a little bit crazy to do so but this was our you know that this was my vision as a celebration and the funny thing is that i just came back as you know from miami and the joke everybody that tasted it they were like wow what a delicious wine and how did you get the idea and i was like well the joke here in the cellar in napa was when i was making this wine everybody here was like who's gonna drink this wine and the joke was florida will drink it because they love big oaky chardonnay and buttery but the reality now in the valley uh, and other markets too younger consumer actually is loving this wine because it doesn't have much malolactic fermentation only 25 percent of the wine went through mallow so there is a little kiss of butter almost like a you know butter popcorn but without being too buttery without having any greasy hands um, and then the oak flavor here is just amazing because it's just pops with butterscotch and vanilla and full spices and and it's a super super long finish you take a sip and five minutes later it's still sitting in your palate um, which is quite quite unique of a chardonnay when you're explaining the taste the aroma etc you had a vision before you created or produced the bottle how close to reality did it become and what were the challenges from idea to reality to get to there? So to, to, to explain that, I have to give you the background. Everything I do is not out of just, you know, just because I decide to. Everything I do, I build it back from the marketplace. Most of winemakers, they have this idea, they go apply it. I have so many ideas. All my ideas actually is based on creating demand that's already in the marketplace or about to be. So my, what I'm trying to explain, a lot of what I do is research and development. I'm not gonna wait to get a market watch article last year to tell me that this, this varietal or this segment is trendy. I'm seeing it live in the marketplace. I'm seeing it live with the consumer. I am doing tastings in stores. I'm doing tastings at restaurants, hosting dinners and seeing what the consumer wants. So I'm seeing it before, uh, before the rest of the industry. So everything I kind of do is based on where the trend is going before it even becomes a trend. Um, and it, it is a gamble because, you know, not everything comes to fruition, but, um, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of like the basic of what I do is based on, uh, based on the wine enthusiasts, people that drink wine, their interests, and what they want to have in the what they want to see that makes me do certain things. That's very, uh, market-based of you i think i think that the the good news is sometimes people make a product based on their their sole interest 
whereas you're truly catering to your audience and your next audience, your potential new audience. Absolutely. Beautiful. Uh, so what is our next wine that we're going to talk about here, Red? The next wine is the Pinot Noir. This is my house, Pinot Noir. We call it the house because this is why I envision to be the house Pinot, basically a Pinot Noir that you open and whether you drink a glass or finish the bottle, if you drink a glass, you can put the cork back on it and it will be good for at least four or five days. All our wines are made in a traditional style and they're exposed early on to oxygen, so they are oxygen resistant. Compared to conventional wines, when you open the wine, conventional wines, by the second, third day, they already flatten out and they become, they turn into vinegar cooking wine or so. Uh, the Pinot Noir here is, uh, you know, it is for the everyday occasion and it doesn't require any food. Although this pairs well with everything, this is the only red I'll probably pair with any type of fish. Uh, it, it really, it, you know, it is, it, it really does really, it, it's very good wine on its own, doesn't really require food. Um, you know, some, I make a lot of big Cabernets and big heavy varietals like Petit Syrah and certain Malbecs that you drink a glass and you start begging for food or walking around the house, going to the kitchen, opening that fridge four or five times subconsciously, um, you know, because some wines really require that. The House Pinot is, uh, is my go-to wine for that everyday, anytime occasion. It is from Carneros, so it's Southern Napa and it's made in a traditional Burgundian style. Um, the, what makes this wine actually unique is that an, a huge amount of, I don't wanna say the majority, but probably the majority of Pinot Noirs now in California are laced with something else to be a varietal on the label, like Pinot Noir or Cabernet or any varietal. All you have to be is 75% to 85% based on the county. So there is a lot of blending and we've seen a lot during the past few years, the emergence of jammy Pinots. It's all cut with something like big and heavy. Pinot's supposed to be lean, uh, you know, a, a beautiful aromatic varietal, high, high, uh, with the high acidity. Um, it's supposed to age really well. Um, so we're going back to that traditional Burgundy style. So this is my uh, house Pinot Noir. And the wine next to it is a red wine blend. So we make 14 different cabs, so many different red wine varietals, 14 of them as well, 14 or 15 different red wine varietals. And all these wines I make are 100% varietal. I don't like to blend. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm really not into blending. I just uh, love to showcase the true expression of the varietal from the terroir that it comes from of Napa Valley. But, but I made this wine and I call it Millennial. This is batch number 96 Millennial. And this wine, is a blend of different varietals. It's like, it's like a world blend almost. It's 63% Petit Syrah, 22% Malbec, 8% uh, 
uh, Tempranillo, Spanish varietal, 7% Primitivo, Italian varietal, and 1% Charbono, um, which is a very rare varietal that we have here in Napa. Uh, so multiple varietals, I called it the millennial because you know, I've, I found that the millennial consumer is looking more for a style when it comes to a red wine, something that's medium body, fruit forward, softer tannins. And um, they're not really much into what vintage is it, what's the region, what's the AVA. They are still very price conscious. So this is a retail price for us is $29. It's our least expensive red wine that we make. And um, it's a really mouthful of a wine. It's very, very juicy. It's like lava cake in a glass. Although it's dry, it's got no residual sugar, it's still so fruit forward. And there are so many flavors from, I said, lava cake to uh, blueberry compote to like uh, raspberry jam. There's so many delicious flavors that come out of this wine. And purposely for this wine, we did not put anything, no vintage, no AVA, no nothing. We just wanted to focus on the blend itself. And, you know, that's a red wine, kind of like it tells you exactly who it's made for. Bash number 96, the millennial. <laughs> and, uh, you know, light glass, our lightest glass we've ever used. So it's, uh, we try to do that with a lot of our high-end Cabernets as well, but it's hard really for the, for the consumer to see a, you know, to see a uh, super premium Cabernet at a light glass yet. It's happening, you know, it's hopefully in the future. But this is one of my uh, favorite wines to share with people that just looking for a simple glass of wine that don't, maybe they don't know, they, they just enter in the wine category and they don't know much about varietals. Um, you know, this is a also a great everyday wine that, um, you know, doesn't need much education. Very well said. And uh, I think simple, affordable, but full of flavor is the right answer for a lot of situations. So that's beautiful. Now, I'm not sure if you see yourself as a foodie. A lot of people do. And so the two things I'm looking for. I know a lot of people say, I don't want to tell you what to eat with this because I want you to explore on your own. So any traditional or non-traditional food pairings that you recommend and or any happy accidents or adventures you've had as far as pairing your bottles with certain foods, certain meals. Yeah, I certainly consider myself a foodie. I mean, half of my uh, time alive is spent uh, going from one restaurant to another. Granted, I don't eat at all each, each one of them all the time, but I do try to eat like a, a small dish everywhere I go and try different things, different cuisines. And I love, you know, um, uh, you know, as someone that was born in Morocco, I love flavor. I, uh, you know, maybe part of my success in winemaking has to do with my palate uh, and my taste for uh, my open mind, the taste for food also, and not, you know, and uh, being willing to uh, try different flavors. Um, you know, the traditional, the traditional pairings, um, you know, well, we, are, we are in Napa, when you 
people, when, you, when you say Napa, people think Cabernet right away. No one would ever think orange wine first, maybe not anytime soon, hopefully one day. But uh, as of now, everybody thinks Cabernet. And Cabernet to me are some red, big red varietals. Um, you know, I think the best, the, the, the best friend for our big wines comes from the grill. So I don't want to get too specific with, you know, definitely like the classic thing is steak, but some great pairing don't have to be steak, can be uh, audible or mushroom. Mushroom can be, uh, you know, I think just the grill mixes really well, can be, you know, just uh, different, you know, lamb can be so many things. But my, uh, one of my favorite pairings right now is this orange wine. I find myself drinking a lot of orange lately. And this orange and is his uh, favorite companion to uh, Southeastern, uh, Southeast Asian cuisines like Thai, Vietnamese, uh, does really well with it. I'll say Indian cuisine with the curries and um, or even Middle Eastern cuisines, um, the Gewurztraminer, the orange of the Gewurztraminer does really well with them. But when it comes to food pairing to me and wine, I really like to keep the, I, I really like to, to keep it simple, simplicity. Um, you know, a lot of my uh, pairings, I love to cook a lot and I love to cook with a lot of herbs and spices. But when I'm really about to pair a wine, I just like to have less ingredients and less spice and almost like have the wine be the spice. Um, so kind of that's my philosophy when it comes to pairing. Less is more, especially with, uh, you know, with, with food, especially for cooking food at home. And um, if you're spending, you know, if, if you're opening a very nice bottle of wine, you don't want to overwhelm it. You don't want to ruin the taste. You want to enjoy it uh, by keeping actually the food that goes with it um, simple. Just, you know, one, two, three, maybe four um, herbs or spices just to enhance the, the dish and uh, bring out the flavors of the wine. The, the season, the, the, the pairings and the spices make a lot of sense. And I think I, I have to incorporate that into my my plating as well so thank you for that um talking about the vice team you have a world-class cmo and you have a genuine superhero thank you <laughs> and i'm hoping you'll tell us uh, like just looking at the label shows us that but obviously not everybody has a superhero on staff so can you talk a little bit about your team how you found both of them and how you all work together. Yeah, so the CMO, uh, we met in 2008. We actually worked together and um, we've been together now uh, since 2008. We've been married 10 years. Uh, so uh, Tori is my uh, partner, but life partner and business partner, of course. Um, her background is fashion. So she was a creative director at her last job, and she 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 went to uh, um, you know Parsons in New York for fashion. Her entire life, she knew she wanted to be in fashion, but today she's uh, you know she's my 
she, I wouldn't be here today. The vice will, will not would, would never existed if it wasn't for Tori. She was crucial, especially for the creation of the vice, the label, some of the marketing aspects of it. And today she's 100% on board with the vice. She has no other job, just, you know, she's the CMO of the vice. And then um, my, uh, you know, our team is, we, we, we have a lot of people on our team. A lot of them are consultants, um, but we have some full-time. We have, we have a decent amount of people with us here full-time, but the, my assistant winemaker is, uh, you know, it's, uh, he's uh, the, the joy of everyday life. Uh, his name is Bruce Wayne. And uh, he's an eight-year-old Tibetan terrier. Um, you know, he's got better nose than any of us. So, and he loves to be in the cellar because of the cool temperature. And um, as I said, probably in the beginning, intertwining personal and the professional, um, having him around uh, most of the day when I'm here in the valley or just having him come with me and he's a very good boy. Uh, it certainly adds a lot of happiness to what we do, and it, you know, it, it, it helps with the craft of the vice. You mentioned that Tori has a fashion background. Was the transition from fashion to wine curious, friction, super easy? What was that transition like? Um, the transition... Sorry about that. No worries. Uh, her transition was similar to mine. It was more of a hobby, part-time, passion project, then part-time, helping the vice. And then last year, um, you know, she, um, we had a baby last year, our first baby. Congratulations. Thank you. So uh, after she went back to work, after her maternity leave, uh, you know, I think her job and herself realized that she, uh, you know, she kind of wanted to focus on uh, the baby a little bit and also full-time on the vice. Uh, I'm sure she would probably say about the same thing. It feels like a, almost a year later Next month will be a, a year later. It's still a transition. You know, when you go with like, you study something, you're passionate about it since you were a child. Since she was three years old, she was drawing clothes and she wanted to be a fashion designer. Going from fashion her whole career to being full-time with the Vice now, it's still a transition. You know, it's still trying to make, when, when, when you work for yourself and you, you know, you work all the time, especially when you, when you, when you own, you know, you own a business and, um, it, you know, sometimes, I, you know, I tell all my friends that have jobs that work from nine to five or whatever hours. I'm like, that's the blessing because once you leave the job, you know, you kind of leave the responsibility and, uh, you don't have to worry about a lot of things. And then you have the, the almost like you're guaranteed to be paid on a certain day of the week. And it's, there's stability in that when you're independent and an entrepreneur, there is none of that, you know, there is always, 
uh, almost the guilt, the daily guilt, am I doing enough? And I don't have any, I won't know if I'm doing enough or not until one day. And that one day is um, either succeed at, you know, look back and say, I made it or look back and say, well, I didn't do enough. So it's, um, you know, I, I think she's still in transition, but she's doing well. She's doing really well. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And in, in a deep metaphysical way, I feel like we're all in transition. So I, I can understand that. Um, as we're wrapping up, final two questions. You've already accomplished so much, both yourself in the wine world over the last 20 years, but the Vice Wine, you've done so much. Where do you see the brand in five years, 10 years, 20 years? What can we look forward to? Thank you for asking. The, the vision since day one was uh, to be an international brand. Today, we are in four international markets and 14 states in the U.S., but this secret fantasy that I've had since day one about creating the vice was for the French to drink the vice. The, the French don't drink American wine. In fact, if, from, if you are from Burgundy, you probably don't even drink Bordeaux or you don't drink Sancerre, you don't drink Provence. They're so into their own wine regions. But I envision my, you know, as I said, it's a, it's a fantasy is for the French um, and it's a good goal to look up to. It's for the French to enjoy the vice, uh, a Napa Valley wine, uh, just like they are drinking Coca-Cola or playing on iPhones or eating McDonald's. These are all, you know, great American brands in a sense. Um, they're international and they're very popular in, you know, in, in globally. Um, but where we will be five, 10, 20 years, uh, you know, I don't like to really put d d deadlines and time limits because the passage of time does things that, you know, it, it's very subjective. And especially with what happened the last three years, the last three years was great for our business. You know, it, it's, we, if anything, it, it kind of spurred us to growth more than we expected. Um, but, uh, Certainly, we, uh, we, our goal, long-term goal with the Vice is to leave a legacy, uh, you know, uh, in the Valley and for, for the brand to inspire the next generation of drinkers and inspire other people that may be listening today to follow their Vice of, of their own, whether it's in wine or not. So, uh, and to be uh, the voice for, um, you know, a fresh voice in Napa. Um, from a sales perspective, you know, we are 27,000 cases. We want to be at 100,000 cases. We want to be in a million cases. But most importantly, we want to maintain the quality and the integrity of the, of the wine that we make. Um, I've noticed that there are brands, once they surpass a certain threshold, when it comes to case production, you go from being a craft wine into a formula wine. Mm. It all identifies as wine, it's all wine, but you know, there, there is a lot of formula wine, wine that has 
probably 30 ingredients you and I can't pronounce because it's not FDA regulated. And, you know, they make it taste consistent year after year. And there's a lot of chemistry that goes into it. Our wines are very simple. There are two ingredients, grapes and a little bit of SO2 to maintain stability. So um, long-term for us is to continue to be a, uh, you know, a true craft wine, real wine, wine that's, uh, you know, that's uh, good for you if you drink it in moderation. That's, that's well said. And I think my projection or my speculation on that younger audience you're going after is that's, it's, it's a, it's a healthy, a healthier than it was in previous years. And so I think you're, you're aiming for that and you're achieving it. And that has nothing to do with flavor or taste or pairing all the stuff you're already accomplishing. Uh, so Malik, you've given me, you've given us over an hour. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your patience. Here's the big thing is you've talked about your wines, your background, your incredible rockstar sales history, your future, your team, your family. How can we help you? What is your request from the audience watching and listening? And how can we learn more about you and your brand? How can we shop your wines? How can we find you? Well, thank you for asking. Um, how you can help me, I see myself as an ambassador of Napa Valley. So I encourage you to please, uh, you know, discover Napa and keep it as the leading wine region in the world. We are a wine stop shop for Napa Valley. We have the most diverse portfolio of Napa Valley wines uh, at, at, at a great price point. Please check us out, thevice.com. Uh, please follow us. Please don't hesitate to reach out. Fun fact is that our corks have my phone number on them. So this ah. is my number. You can text me, call me, DM me, FaceTime me. If I'm not in an awkward situation, I'll pick up. But uh, I'm, so, I'm very accessible. Uh, you know, I'd love to... Uh, um, I'd love to hear from, from you. I'd love to answer your questions. I'd love to help you discover the wine industry, but specifically Napa. I'd love to help you uh, not only discover it and enjoy it as well. That is incredible. This is inspiring. Again, not just delicious, not just good wine, but your story is inspiring. So thank you. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Huge thank you to our guests, Malik and Romney. His company, The Vice Wine, it's delicious, it's fun, it's interesting. If you have a chance, please give him a taste. Uh, thank you to you for listening. I always appreciate you stopping by, so thank you. And thank you to our team for editing and producing these episodes. We'll see you next week. Have an amazing time.